Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, with all the energy from the Women's March, will get her elected end up being more than a catchphrase? We'll hear how in New York State in 2018, there really are still child brides. And an artist who will talk about how he uses his work to deal with personal issues like bipolarism and PTSD. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Welcome to the show. Not every woman in New York City was out marching this weekend. Lady Liberty, for one, was busy doing her job welcoming immigrants, knowing that due to the government shutdown, she'd be starting this week working from home. Thanks to a Senate deal that'll keep things running for a couple of more weeks, she and her torch should be back in business for now. But if you were on the subway Saturday or anywhere near Central Park with an estimated 200,000 marchers in New York alone and huge crowds protesting across the country, it sure felt like last year's Women's March was the anniversary getting most of the love, not the first year of you-know-who's presidency. But hey, all I get is fake news. We'll find out how all that emotion out on the streets might get channeled into political power, and specifically into putting more women into office when we speak with the woman who runs Get Her Elected. Meanwhile, some very young women, well, they're still wearing braces, so let's call them girls, are being married off as child brides. Yes, now, in New York. We'll find out about the effort to raise the marriage age to 17, from 14. Wow. And finally, artist Vincent Dermody on how his sculpture illustrates his Irish family roots and his own personal struggles. But first, these things. Government shutdown or not, nothing seems to be stopping the flu this season. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, New York State's Department of Health says more people, about 1,600, were hospitalized the week ending January 13th than at any time since they began counting cases in 2004. Statewide, there have been more than 17,000 confirmed cases this season. And in the city, ER visits are higher than normal. The simplest and best defense, we're told, is frequent hand washing but you can wait till the show's over. A couple of transportation-related stories now. First, again from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, research shows that we really like being able to use our smartphones in the subway. Personally, I don't love having to overhear someone next to me fighting with that special someone. But in 2017, writers made more than 280 million calls underground. The busiest stations for Wi-Fi logins? Times Square is number one overall, and in Brooklyn, it's Atlantic Avenue Barclay Center. You could have guessed that, right? But would you believe, according to a website called Secret NYC, that the city now has its first mobile meditation studio? The B-Time bus goes into operation this week, offering cool LED lighting, comfy cushions, and aromatherapy. Your first class costs 10 bucks, then goes up to $22 for a half hour ride. There are also package deals, and you can find out more on Instagram at B-Time Practice. The bus's garage should be called Home Depot, but it's probably not. Stay with us. Our first conversation coming right up. 
Now, here's Ashley's conversation with Lily Herman, founder of Get Her Elected. Why is it so important that we get women elected? Where to even begin with that question? <laughs> oh, goodness. So many reasons. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, women, despite making up roughly half of the population, uh, make up roughly one in five of the representatives in Congress. Uh, the numbers get even bleaker depending on which office you're talking about and where. Mm -hmm. So primarily that, uh, in addition, a lot of issues that pertain to women are largely ignored, uh, oh, yeah. be it you know, reproductive rights, uh, things of that nature, but then also there are a lot of issues that affect all Americans, but very few people look at it through the lens of what those issues look like for women. Right. So, so many reasons to get them elected. Uh, so many great women who should be elected. So mm -hmm. it's definitely a great time in politics to be, to be working in that realm. Talk to me about that, the timing. Why right now? Again, a lot of reasons. <laughs> I think, yeah, why do women, why right now? Right. First and foremost, I think just a lot of people are really angry mm -hmm. and, and in that have really realized their own abilities, their own power mm -hmm. in, in that kind of anger and rage. Uh, I think also more than ever, while obviously we have some interesting people in the White House who do not really believe in the power of women, there are lots of people who are maybe rethinking their own views right now mm -hmm. and are much more willing than ever before to elect women. On top of that, I think just people want competent people in office, and right. you know, if you're if you were saying, oh, I might not, I, I might not think a woman is competent for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. uh, now again, you're just kind of good with anyone who, who who seems smarter, like they know what they're doing, or confident in their abilities. So so many women, I think, too, are just really encouraged by a lot of sisterhoods that are popping up, both online mm -hmm. and in person, uh, where women are coming out to support one another, and where just the general population is supporting them. So there's a lot of stuff that makes it a really, really great environment. And on top of that, too, I think a lot of political parties just want a lot of candidates, and they're willing to, you know, Take a take a chance on a candidate that right. they might not have even a year and a half ago, where it's just sort of all hands on deck, and why not? Absolutely. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between progressive women candidates and conservative women candidates. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen as much of a like surge of cons conservative women mm -hmm. um, jumping to like run for office, it's mostly been progressive women, right? Yes. Why is so, that? Yes, so a couple of things. One, obviously I think if we look at where uh, the conservative movement, and particularly if we wanna get specific to political party, Republicans are right mm -hmm. now, uh, it's not really a party that's women friendly or, or mm -hmm. conducive to uh, women being able to uh, run for office for women to kind of be nurtured in that way to run for office even before they they file their campaign stuff mm -hmm. uh, So you already have this environment that's pretty hostile towards women and right. where it's sort of uh, Believed that maybe women shouldn't be the ones in charge or running for office mm -hmm. uh, And also yeah, I think on the flip side you have a lot of uh, both liberal and then progressive campaigns where that's just part of their politics is right. women are supposed to have equal rights everyone is supposed to have equal rights mm -hmm. and if that's kind of part of your belief system already, it's pretty easy to then make the jump to, well, we should have candidates that represent those different identities, those different mm -hmm. belief systems. It just sort of makes sense in a way that it doesn't for, for conservatives. On top right. of that, I think it's just a, a difficult time to be a conservative running in office. Oh, I, yeah. think, I think a lot of Republican strategists, a lot of media publications have been making fun of the fact that it seems like a lot of Republican strategists just realize that it, midterms is not 
probably going to go the way they want it to. So, right. you know, if you have a record number of people retiring from, especially Congress, it, you're probably not going to want to be the one to fill those shoes or try to mm -hmm. even run in that case. So talk, when, like, I was going to just go, so talk to me again, but I was like, you know what, Ashley, stop saying so talk to me about <laughs> I'm like, nah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that. But I do want to know, because I know, like, months ago, maybe even a year ago, yeah. you were talking about getting women to sort of, like, volunteer their yeah. skills to help women who wanted to run. Yeah. That, over that amount of time, has yeah. turned into get her elected. Yes. Talk to me about Get Her Elected. Yes. Oh, oh. I love to talk about Get Her Elected. So, <laughs> yeah. So basically, uh, I, I've always kind of been in the political realm, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I, I work in media, I do some writing, I do a lot of other marketing stuff on the side, but always been involved with politics. Lily, you're like uh, the busiest person I know, to, yeah. be, honest, to be honest. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I give off that. Yeah, there are days. You do. <laughs> I mean, you are very productive. You know what? Yeah. Maybe you're not the busiest person, but you are one of the most productive oh. people that I've ever, ever, ever known, and we only oh have known goodness. each other online until this moment. Well, thank you. I'm going to tell my mom you said yeah. that. I'm very excited. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, so essentially I've always worked in politics. I volunteered for campaigns. I've worked for campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, I've known people who work professionally for campaigns. I, I know people who've worked for places like Emily's List or Merge right. America. So over time, you kind of hear the same grievances as you go on mm -hmm. from these different people. And something I kept hearing even well before the 2016 election was, okay, there are so many phenomenal organizations. You can go down the list of Emily's List, Emerge America, She Should Run, Vote Run mm -hmm. Lead, and then the more state or local specific ones. And they're all great for empowering women to run, giving them that initial jump start, showing them how to file to run, maybe the beginnings of building a campaign, so right. building a fundraising list, how to go get out the vote. But a lot those of specifics. them- Exactly, so they're mm -hmm. great for that beginning starting point, but there was no one really once they got those women through that initial part of the pipeline to really help them on their campaigns. It was right. really a fend for yourself situation. Uh, and, and in particular, a lot of women were saying, well, I, you know, I don't have, a lot of these women don't have money to pay people. And since right. a lot of the candidates we work with too, uh, part of their progressive platform is that they're not taking money from corporations and a lot of right. different bigger packs. They're saying, I just don't have the money. Mm -hmm. I know I'd be a great representative and great in office, but I don't have the money, for instance, to pay, you know, 300, 400 bucks an hour to a political consulting firm to answer, you know, two questions I have about simple campaign strategy. Right. Uh, and so that was becoming very obvious, whereas there was sort of this break in the pipeline where there are some support groups and Facebook groups and, and a lot of these programs now have kind of mentorship programs, but mm -hmm. there was sort of a piece missing from that. Right. And at the same time, especially after the election, I, I live in New York. I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida, which is mm -hmm. a much more conservative and slightly purple, but definitely red area. Right. Um, but I'm not in Jacksonville now, so I can't physically go out and canvas for, for candidates down there. Mm -hmm. um, so the question was, what can I do from New York City here that affects people all over the country? Right. And a lot of other people had similar thoughts. So I, because I'm a big believer in the don't create something if it already exists right. you know, mindset, went out looking for an organization like Get Her Elected, thinking there must be someone just creating some sort of email list and you know sending out requests from candidates and then sending those right. prospective volunteers on to candidates, something like that, some match program. Mm -hmm. And there pretty much it. came out with nothing. <laughs> yeah, I searched far and wide for months. Right. And then finally, it was just like, you know what? I, I, mu I must not be the only person. And I know other friends of mine had said the same thing of, I want to do more. But I so live, many people. Yeah, I live in you know a very blue area. I don't live right. close to a red area. It's not easy for me to leave my, my mm -hmm. geographic location. 
So how can I still help? So so yeah. So, so how can they help? Somebody wants to know more about Get Her Elected. Yes. How do they find out? So we have a website called getherelected.com. Mm -hmm. And essentially, we make it super easy for people to fill out a simple contact form. Just say, hi, I'm a, I'm a prospective volunteer. Uh, here are the skills I have. And, and they can get as random as you'd like them to get. We have right. people who do everything from motion graphics to voiceovers. Mm -hmm. We have writers and editors. We have graphic designers. We have people who have made a career in data science, all of that. We kind right. of, and then we just have people who, who say they want to, they're down to help, they'll do whatever, and they just come along for the ride. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so we make it super easy from that end. And then from there, yeah, it's essentially a system of, um, we send out weekly emails to mm -hmm. our network uh, of different candidate requests we get from the uh, 150 different candidates we work with. Right. We send those on to our volunteers. Uh, they have a couple days to send us materials to send on to those candidates if they're mm -hmm. interested. And the candidates, what we really hope is to empower women to pick the volunteers that are the best fit for their campaign and not just right. feel like they have to accept help just because it's there. Absolutely. So yes, yeah, so that's a huge part of why we set up our, our organization the way we did is so that right. volunteers really like to vet, you know, they want to vet the candidates that they want to work for, and then they get to send those materials to them. And then, they, I mean, the volunteers, you know, get to meet those women. Those candidates get to feel like they picked people who invested in their campaigns from the beginning. Right. Um, and so we hear a lot of really great stories of relationships building, candidates and, and volunteers working past the initial request, uh, things like that. It's very inspiring and, and you know, feel, it makes people excellent. warm and fuzzy. Yes. It sounds excellent. Getherelected.com. That's yes. what people need to go to yes. if they want to help out. That's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about candidates right now in my head who I'm excited about. I'm excited about Stacey Abrams. I'm excited about Kristen Gillibrand. I'm excited to just see what these women have to say. I'm excited to see what happens with them. And thank you so much for being here, Lily, Absolutely. and for creating Get Her Elected. Absolutely. And I hope that people listen to this and run, run <laughs> to sign up and volunteer. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. Imagine yourself as a 14-year-old. What's on your mind? Friends, crushes, classes, Riverdale? Right here in New York City, for more young girls than you might imagine, what's on their minds is the very real threat of being married off by their families. Here to tell us more and to talk about the advocacy work aimed at changing the state's minimum marriage age, which, believe it or not, is 14, is Safia Majibin from WISE's Women's Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality. Thanks for joining us on 112BK, Safia. Hey. Can you just start by telling me a little bit about your story and why you're passionate about this issue? Um, my own personal story is I come from a cultural background uh, which uh, doesn't see child marriage as an issue, mm -hmm. uh, which actually thinks uh, child marriage is, is a good thing right. um, and uh, sees it as a, a tool to, uh, a, a tool of many to control young girls. Right. Yeah. Um, so growing up, marriage was always there. The first time that my dad told me he was going to get me married or threatened me with marriage mm -hmm. was when I was 10 years old. Um, uh, you know, to me, because marriage was so common in our community, it, it wasn't a big deal. It didn't really phase me. Uh, mm -hmm. But I knew that I didn't want to get married. Uh, right. And I knew that uh, I didn't even know what marriage was. I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to save right. the world. You right. know, I have my own ambitions. I have my own passions. Um, and I wanted to make my own decisions. So as I got older and uh, the pressure to get married 
became more and more intense where it went to psychological and physical uh, violence, um, I was able to leave my home and, you know, start living independently without the fear of being forced into marriage. Um, well, you know, something important to note is that I left at 19, mm -hmm. but the threat of being forced into marriage was still really real. Wow. So this this legislation, uh, the legislations that we have across the country that raises the age uh, from whatever minimum uh, the states have. Some states, mm -hmm. by the way, don't have any age minimums. Yeah. So um, uh, any judge uh, with their own uh, arbitrary judgment mm -hmm. can say, you nine-year-old are a-okay to get married right. um, because you're either pregnant or you have a child or it might be because of a rape case. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, so even yeah. even if you're no longer a child, the mm -hmm. the uh, the concept of forced marriage uh, follows uh, young girls uh, and young women uh, into adulthood. And what does this lead to? Um, you know, I, like there are obvious things. You know, for someone like me, I go, okay, fourteen's way too young to get married. Right. You know, thirteen, twelve, whatever. Like it's it's all way too young. So I, I guess that for some people who don't see it as too young they want to know, okay, but what does it actually hurt? What actually happens to these young girls when they are forced into early marriage or, you know, just are married early, period? What happens to them? So um, if we look at the numbers, um, in New York State uh, from 2000 to 2010, mm -hmm. uh, uh, over 3,500 young uh, children were married in this state. Um, 75% uh, of them were young girls. Uh, so this happens to young boys, but not nearly as much. Um, and 77% of, of those minors were married to uh, spouses way older than them. So what you're looking at are very young girls being married to much older men. And sometimes these uh, age gaps are horrific. Uh, you have 15-year-olds getting married to 50-year-olds. Uh, in in situations like that, uh, pretty much what we're doing is we're legalizing statutory rape. Right. <laughs> um, we're uh, putting young people in situations where they're more likely to drop out of uh, high school, mm -hmm. not go to college. So they are disadvantaged already because they right. don't have the necessary education they need to right. function in society so they can have good paying jobs, um, so they have that financial security as mm -hmm. they go into the future. And, and, and when they're married at such a young age, their much older spouse mm -hmm. it has much more control and power oh, in yeah. their lives. So you're talking about much higher risks of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. You're talking about much uh, higher risks of pregnancy and multiple pregnancies when a child is still a child. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, a child raising children. Right. Um, so what you're doing is you're setting up this minor for failure. Absolutely. Uh, failure not just as a mother, but also failure as a human being to function properly in society. Right. And one thing that we often don't talk about is the mental health consequences that you can't really put a statistic on. Of course you can't, because that kind of harm has always been more qualitative than quantitative. quantitative. Can you talk to me a little bit about this legislation and about sure. what it means? Is it being supported? So the legislation already passed in the summer of 2017. Thank Great. God. Um, but it came with a lot of resistance. Mm. Uh, so uh, 
uh, we, uh, I'm, I'm not from, I, I'm currently interning at WISE, but at right. the time I was an intern at Sanctuary for Families. Okay. And they, they among others, uh, like Unchained at Last and Tahiri Justice Center, mm -hmm. spearheaded the legislation here in New York State. Um, and uh, uh, the legislation was first introduced in 2015 here right. in New York State. Mm -hmm. it, it died before it even came to a vote. Right. Because there was so much resistance, uh, one was uh, a fear of you know voters from uh, Orthodox uh, religious communities um, and immigrant uh, communities that would not vote for that uh, legislature anymore. Wow, which is unfounded, really. Um, and and also you know not really thinking that this is an issue, it, right. you know because you have data, you have statistics, but the it hasn't been humanized. Mm -hmm. So um, in 2016, the, uh, when I began interning at Sanctuary for Families, mm -hmm. uh, they relaunched, uh, uh, they had a second attempt to get the bill passed. Um, uh, and they asked me to sort of humanize uh, the data. Uh, right. So I uh, talked at a, uh, I, I told my story at a, a press conference they had in Albany. Um, and that got the intention of the media. And, right. and I, I spent a year just talking to people like you. Talking to people uh, like me about um, your... Some not so nice as you. Oh. Um, well, I don't understand how anyone couldn't be. This is such an important issue. It is. Um, uh, I think it's a very human issue. Mm -hmm. Like, I appreciate you taking the time to humanize it for people, though it's really hard for me to understand how anyone couldn't see it as a very human issue so before that. For me, just as an individual, for me right. to talk about something like child marriage, especially wearing my, you know, head covering, mm -hmm. being a Muslim and coming from an immigrant background, there are, you know, subtle background uh, narratives of xenophobia, racism, and Islamophobia. Right. So when, as I was speaking and trying to bring uh, awareness about the issue of child mm -hmm. marriage here in New York State, which right. New York, uh, New York State laws allow, right. um, people were sidetracked by Sharia law, or right. you know, or where, things no, like that. nothing like. Which that doesn't have anything about. to do with exactly. anything. Exactly. So thank you so much for coming on and for having this conversation and for continuing to humanize the issue. We all have things buried deep in our memory, things we'd probably rather keep buried in there and repress. By contrast, Brooklyn-based artist Vincent Dermody has used his sculptures as an exploration of self and healing. His current solo exhibition at Mountain Gallery in Bushwick is called What Burns Never Returns, and it explores everything from the superstitions entwined in his family's Irish roots to his family's name being misspelled upon arrival in the U.S. He's here in the studio to tell us more. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you so much for having me. So, can you just start by telling me the significance of the memory in jugs? Why jugs? Well, uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Mm. Uh, memory jugs are a very old folk art form, uh, African-American uh, folk art form, as well as through Victorian uh, times in, in Europe as well, mm -hmm. and in the United States. It was a, it was a way to pass the time. Right. It was a way to... Uh, take your knickknacks, your doodads, your gotcha deals, as my Italian wife's uh, family says, yeah. and put them all together. And uh, I noticed that I had all these jugs around from drinking. Mm -hmm. And it sort of happened organically. I'm a, a, a trained sculptor and painter, but I started to put all the things together that I had. And in a sense, started to reconstruct my past and uh, what was ailing wow. me at the time. 
Wow. Um, so through the, through the process of four years of working on this, there's been, it's sort of like a, a, a palimpsest. Mm -hmm. uh, there's many layers of, the, of uh, memory, trauma, fear, anxiety. Right. Uh, and it's like heapage. It keeps glomming on, more meanings keep happening. And then it's sort of, once it's finished, there's some sort of healing that takes place when it's finished. Is the goal of these pieces your own healing or healing for others as well? I think originally it was for uh, my own healing, mm -hmm. but as I make them and I find people having joy in experiencing them uh, and sort of feeling, uh, feeling close to me through them right. and then hearing my story, uh, I do think that there is a little bit of healing that happens when you experience them for everybody. Talk to me a little bit about the Irish history here. I'm first generation Irish, mm -hmm. uh, very superstitious. Uh, I got a billion stories. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them is that my mom showed up as a dog to her own funeral. Uh, my dad passed from alcoholism in 92. Uh, he was uh, 52 years old. Mm -hmm. My mom was murdered at 60 wow. by her second husband. And uh, I'm haunted by these things. Mm -hmm. um, so my work has taken this place of, uh, it's, it's hard to explain, but uh, well, it's okay. I have a grave that I made when my mom died, mm -hmm. uh, based with a it, was a, it was a tiny inheritance that I got uh, when my brother sold the family house. Mm -hmm. And I changed my name by one letter to reflect the original family name, because when my dad came over, he had such a heavy brogue that they misspelled his last name. So I exhibited this piece in 2003. Uh, I restored a 1978 Ford LTD2, slapped a license plate on there with the new name and then the old name, metaphysically burying myself in the grave. Uh, after the show, it was stored in a garage, which mysteriously burned down, some say by arson, mm. but they never caught anybody. Right. And when they, when they, uh, the firemen extinguished the, the fire, the grave exploded. So I've been carrying this grave around ever since, essentially carrying my old self. And it was pretty, uh, you know, pretty vain to think that I could bury my old self at 27. Right. And never truly lay the other person to rest. So in the show at Mountain Gallery, mm -hmm. the grave is there again. This time it's been painted. Uh, it's surrounded by 420 roses because I quit smoking weed mm. and I don't drink anymore. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling really blessed that I'm breaking the family curse. Wow. What have been some of the reactions that you've had to the work so far from others? Uh, it's, it's always, uh, it's always magical, mm -hmm. you know, not to throw that word around again. No, it's easy to okay. throw the word magic around, but, um, I see joy in people when they, when they, see that little piece that like that broken bottle cap or that tiny toy that they might have had when they were a kid right um or and through their discovery of my work through looking at the edges and and finding things hidden in there mm -hmm. um it reminds me that uh, of this thing uh old chinese proverb i think it's chinese yeah that to to kill the dragon you got to make it beautiful mm. so when i see people enjoying the aesthetics and the colors and the vibrancy of the work. Um, I remind, reminded of where I came from and how resilient I am from my past. 
So for the rest of us who want to enjoy this work, who want to see it and get this view into your life and into your past and into your roots and all of that, where do we go to see it? How long can we see it? And when's a good time? Uh, it's open by appointment only. Mm -hmm. I believe uh, the next two Saturdays it's open 10 to 4. I got to check with the gallerist. Okay. It's an apartment gallery. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's not the typical space that's open all the time. Right. Um, but if you check out Mountain Gallery on Facebook or Mountain Gallery's website, uh, you can reach them through there. I don't know if it's a good idea to pull up my phone and show you, the, find the email address. Oh, but, that's okay. Yeah. We can figure it out. Yeah, you can figure it out. Yeah. But, uh, Mountain Gallery's been around for a long time, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm really excited. This is their first solo show. So, Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here, Vincent. I really appreciate you coming on and talking thank about this Thank you so much. Work. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching. Brian Vines will take over for me tomorrow. He'll host a conversation about deportation and immigration here in NYC. He'll also speak with the provocative Robert Ganji on police reform and meet an artist with an, with an exhibit here at Brick that's all about New York's history with slavery. And his medium is duck feathers, 20,000 of them. You got to see it to believe it. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Haugasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aishan, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.